Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Senator Robert A. Taft, Secretary of State Dean Acheson, Harold Stassen, Admiral Chester Nimitz, Governor James F. Burns, Johnny Dundee, Dr. James Conant, Senator Paul Douglas, Representative Joe Martin, Louis Calhern, and more than 45 other people in the news. In the sixth performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every Friday night at this time. If we ought to survive, there must be equality of sacrifice right across the board. Patriotism is not something only expected of the young. Young fella, you're in the middle of a war. Fight like hell. Well, that'd be all right with us fellas, but what about the boxing fans itself? They wouldn't like it. They like to see blood. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real. They are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Morrow. Slowly, the nation that was half awake was becoming half prepared. There was the strain and stress of stiff joints and unused muscles, both in manpower and war power and brain power. In San Francisco, as at Navy bases all along the coast, they were taking the fleet out of mothballs. In San Francisco, the aircraft carrier Antietam was recommissioned. Captain George Dufek will now take command of the Antietam. I accept command of the United States ship Antietam. A good ship was going back to battle, and a great captain was there to wish it good seas and fair winds. Admiral Chester Nimitz, whose mission since his retirement has been to work for peace at the U.N., sending steel back to salt water. I have had the privilege now and good fortune of being present at the recommissioning of four large carriers within the last four months. The Ariscany, the Bonham Richard, the Essex, and now the Antietam. It's a great satisfaction to me to know that today we are approaching the strength that we had in early 1946. But the warships and the admirals and the generals weren't the only ones with new wars and new jobs. The mimeograph machines at Army and Navy centers were grinding out new reams of special orders. And the stencil machines that label the famous barracks bags were working overtime. At Westover Field, Massachusetts, 
a good-looking young whack got the orders of a lifetime to proceed at once to shape Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers in Europe. Ike's new headquarters. PFC Maxine Powell. My first sergeant called and told me to report immediately to post personnel. So upon arrival at post personnel, they said, all these orders we have on the desk is for you, and you're going over to General Eisenhower's staff as a secretary. So everything was in a bustle, and they were rushing me around, said, you've got to have shots, you've got to have a passport. So everybody was giving me their best wishes, and I was had to rush like mad to start packing because I wanted to leave right away. Everyone was started telling me, well, you'll have to do this, and you'll have to do the other, because... This is one chance in a lifetime, and I'm most fortunate. PFC Powell and her general and the aircraft carrier Antietam were not the only ones with new orders. The Air Force changed its goal from 84 groups to 95 or 100. General Marshall said we needed to draft 18-year-olds. He hoped they would not be committed to combat until they were 19, except in dire emergency. A new $2 billion Navy shipbuilding plan went through the House with no dissents, 365 votes to none. The nation was beginning to move, and the story of the demothballing and the new mimeographed orders and the big new jobs was a big story. But the biggest story of this week was money, and where's it coming from? To the Congress of the United States, I transmit herewith my recommendations for the budget of the United States government for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1952. Here is George Maurer, the reading clerk of the House, reading the budget for 1952 to the Congress. It was the largest budget in the history of the nation. Actually, it is a message from the president, but the chief executive never reads it to Congress himself. It's too much for him and for most of the rest of us. The 1952 budget looks like a Sears and Roebuck catalog, weighs as much as a New York phone book, and has more than a thousand pages in it. If you read all the pages and count up all the columns of this most important book of the year, you'll find that it all adds up to $71.5 billion. We held this heavy book in our hands and wondered, how do you translate the budget of the United States into sound? We decided to go to the factory where this money is made. Now you're in Washington at the government printing office. Folks, have your attention for just a moment, please. During your tour, there will be no smoking or taking pictures in the Bureau. All films will be confiscated if pictures are taken. You are now in the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. The printing press you hear is a rather specialized one. It makes $1,000 bills. We asked the man who operates it, how long it would take for the $1,000 bill machine to print the $71.5 billion needed for the budget, working full-time? Uh, 12 notes on a plate, and the press prints 12, 15 plates a minute, so that this machine can print $180,000 worth of bills each 60 seconds. If you work this machine constantly during a full eight-hour day, you can turn out $86,400,000 dollars. It would take this machine, working constantly, two and a half years to turn out $72 billion in $1,000 bills. The man with the printing press told us there was a special machine for printing $100,000 bills, but that was only by presidential request. The $100,000 bills, the $1,000 bills, and our tattered dollar bills are, of course, only paper, backed by the gold reserve of the United States at Fort Knox. But this budget week, at least one congressman, Carol Kearns of Pennsylvania, Republican, wanted some assurance that the gold was still there, said he didn't trust the people who counted it. I would just like to say that on October 5, 1949, 
I presented a resolution to the House of Representatives requesting that a select committee be chosen to inspect the gold at Fort Knox. And it seems to me, with all the billions of dollars that we appropriate in Congress, we ought to know how secure our gold reserve is. I will be glad to withdraw this resolution at any time. Any member of the House or any member of the Senate can tell me that he personally has inspected the gold at Fort Knox. My whole brief in this thing is, is that I would like to have an elected representative of the people see the gold, not an appointed person in government. Mrs. Nellie Taylor Ross, mistress of the mint and keeper of the gold, assures us that the gold is still there. The president presented advance copies of the budget to the press and radio. We read some of the summary pages. We were impressed. Not just at the total, but at the breakdown per dollar. Seventy-one and a half billion dollars. That's $477 for every man, woman, and child in this country. But we, like most people, don't understand just what $71.5 billion really is. What about the individual dollars that make up that total? What parts of it go to do what? I am holding in my hand 100 pennies. Pennies make noise. And I thought you might like to hear what every budget dollar sounds like. Out of every dollar we spend, for example, 7 cents goes to veterans' benefits to train, educate, insure, and pay pensions to the men who fought our wars. Sounds like this. Out of every tax dollar in the budget, the cost of running the government, civil service, weather bureau, tax collection, salaries, pencils, pensions, and so forth, two cents. Health and education, civil defense, the census, slum clearance, four cents of every dollar. Interest on government debts. That's mainly the money the government borrowed from us to fight previous wars. Eight cents. Foreign aid. The Marshall Plan. Military aid to other nations of the Atlantic Pact. Aid to Korea and to almost all the free nations of the world. Ten cents. Commerce and agriculture. Loans to business, unemployment services, TVA, labor statistics, the post office, merchant marine, highways, and so forth, 11 cents. The military, Army, Navy, Air Force, billets, bullets, battleships, all the preparation for war, more than half of every dollar. Fifty-eight cents out of every dollar goes to the Department of Defense and its projects. The budget was by no means a popular publication, even if widely reviewed. Many Republicans accused the president of playing politics by including many of his fair deal projects. Minority House Leader Joe Martin of Massachusetts didn't like the budget at all. Of course, the touchstone in this socialist blueprint is increased taxation. Already the average American is paying more than 25% of his income to federal, state, and local governments in the form of taxation. With the additional staggering increases proposed, American citizens will find themselves turning over to the government between one-third and one-half of all they earn so that the government may spend it for them. This can only lead to less independence for the individual and more dependence on government. Exactly the socialist goal. 
Senator Humphrey of Minnesota and most other Democrats approved of the new budget. We must put first things first. And the first job of the American people today is to defend the ramparts of freedom, to defend our own country. And I shall vote on the budget issues, on appropriations, on the basis of what is its direct contribution to the national defense and the national security. I believe that we must pay as we go. If we do not, we shall merely enter into greater inflation and possible economic disaster. The nation is already $256 billion in debt to its citizens. That means if each of us, man, woman, and child, had to pay off tomorrow, it would cost us about $1,700 apiece. The president wants to avoid adding to this debt. He wants us to pay as we go during the next year. That means we'll have to raise at least another $16.5 billion, most of it by new taxes on individuals and corporations. It also means that we must increase our present revenue from all sources by about 30%. One more figure. The cost of our past wars, our preparations for future wars, adds up to 87% of the total budget. It is this and the warning that it will all go on and on that has led many in Washington and many people throughout the country to talk of economic disaster. At home, talk of economic disaster. And in Korea, the constant menace of military disaster. Day after day, 8th Army communiques spoke of patrol actions, reconnaissance in force. We are trying to fix the enemy's location and his number. Our troops captured Osan, 23 miles south of Seoul, without a fight. The enemy moved out of Suwon, 17 miles south of Seoul, and we moved in. One of our patrols went into Wanju, found it abandoned, withdrew, then today went in again to spend the night. These men could see the enemy roaming the surrounding hills, wondered when he would attack. Lieutenant Colonel Wes McFerrin of Minneapolis describes just such a situation. I'm behind a brick wall, alongside a Korean hut, the edge of a village, where you catch glimpses of their men moving in small groups, quickly through the trees on the hillsides, into positions, uh, or toward what we think will be positions from which they will springboard their counterattack. I don't know when that attack will come. We're pretty tired. We've been up all night uh, getting ready for our own attack this morning. And now we are preparing as best we can to stop this enemy envelopment. We can see men moving down across the hills about 2,000 yards away across the rice paddies in white. In Washington, General Marshall and his staff were trying to get congressional permission to draft 18-year-olds. This week, Boston police tried to forget that million-dollar Brinks robbery pulled off a year ago remained unsolved. The president of the United States tried to remember how to play the Missouri waltz, but he couldn't do it. The army tried to boost morale. Beginning Sunday, the term rookie is out. New men will be called private. Two Los Angeles women tried to get divorces. One claimed her husband cut the handles off her croquet mallets. The other said her husband turned on their TV set every time she started playing the piano. Russia's press tried to stir up a little more propaganda. Claimed textbooks in Washington, D.C. began like this. A for atom, B for bomb, etc. In Brooklyn, two women returning from a lodge meeting with ceremonial swords were held up. While one started to chase the robbers with her sword, the other, Mrs. Emma Schmaltz, got shot but wasn't seriously hurt. Mrs. Schmaltz felt she owed her life to a very fine piece of merchandise. At the hospital, 
after they removed my corselet, they found the bullet wedged in between my flesh and my corselet. If it would have been an inch either way, I wouldn't be here to tell this story. I can truthfully say that only for the wonderful steel that was used in my Ringo Bell corselet, I wouldn't be here today. And I do owe them a great deed of gratitude that their merchandise was so perfect that I can recommend it to anybody. In South Carolina, an old-style politician went back to work. Do you, James Francis Burns, bottomless wear, you are duly qualified according to the Constitution of this state? You are listening to one of the strangest oaths in American politics. James F. Burns, now 72, former senator, Supreme Court justice, and secretary of state of the United States, as he returned to politics and took the oath of governor of South Carolina. He is swearing that he has not engaged in a duel since 1881. Do you further solemnly swear that you have not, since the first day of January, in the year 1881, engaged in a duel as principal or second or otherwise, and that you will not, during the term of office to which you have been elected, engage in a duel as principal, second, or otherwise, so help you God. I do. Governor Burns, I wish you good luck. Jimmy Burns spoke of his conferences with the Russians back in 1946, and he asked for a firm hand, but no withdrawal from Europe or Asia. He remembered his days as war mobilizer under FDR, and he asked for price controls now. In the last war, when I was appointed director of war mobilization, I found that the failure to freeze prices and wages at the outset threatened the economy of the nation. On my recommendation, President Roosevelt issued the hold the line order. That line was held. Every day now that we delay freezing prices and wages across the board, will cause more inequities, higher prices, and additional costs to the taxpayers of the United States. Americans had been wondering when price controls would be demanded. On Wednesday night, Charles Wilson, our 1951 war mobilizer, spoke in Philadelphia, and in simple direct words left no doubt that the big freeze was only a matter of days away. Mr. Wilson. What about our economy in the face of such expansion? such expenditures, uh, such use of materials. How do we keep it from running away? There is only one answer. Controls. I hate the word, so do you. But there is no other way. Voluntary methods will not work. That has been proven. The power of law must be invoked. As we listened to Mobilizer Wilson's speech in Philadelphia, we wondered how the American people would react to it and whether they were ready for price controls. We asked our CBS reporters in three cities, Bangor, Maine, St. Louis, and Dallas, Texas, to ask their fellow citizens about price controls. This is what they said. 
Uh, as far as wage and price control go, I believe that they should roll back prices to June the 1st, 1950, and that they should keep prices as are before the Korean War. As a housewife, I'm opposed to rationing at this time. The word rationing means war and all of its dreadful surroundings. I'm not speaking for myself, but for every man that leaves his civilian occupation and goes into uniform. Military pay is not as bad as the Saab sisters would say that it is. Men in uniform are paid quite well, provided that those that are in industry, our merchants, our services that our families must have to sustain life are not caught in a runaway price inflation, and they just can't keep up with it. Something has to be done uh, to control the regulations according to fulfill our emergency. Anything should be controlled. Anything that requires for our emergency should be done. At present, I don't believe we need food rationing, but if the world situation gets more serious and, and more and more people start to hoard food, well, then I think we should revert to wartime standards and have ration stamps again. I will have less meat to sell than, than my customers will need, and I do not think that the customer with the most money should be able to buy all the meat. I say let's figure out a fair way of rationing. I don't believe that we should have food rationing right now because there's no scarcity of food. I was always under the impression that when we start rationing food, it was due to a scarcity of food. Well, I think they ought to pass control laws, labor, capital, prices, and all the way through. Straight place and show. Today, Alan Valentine went out as economic stabilization director. Replaced by Eric Johnson, president of the Motion Picture Association of America. As often happens in this country, the people seem to be far ahead of their leaders. If someone would tell us what sacrifices were expected of us, we would make them. If price controls and even wage controls were necessary, most Americans seemed ready. Perhaps Stuart Symington, chairman of the National Security Resources Board, talking in St. Louis two nights ago, spoke for most of us. Who can be a bigger fool than the fool who continues to fool himself, especially when his own existence is at stake. And therefore, nothing could be more important than that today we, the American people, face the facts. If anything is certain in this atomic age, this is what we now know. If America gets strong fast and stays strong, we may well avoid a third world war. But if we don't, there is sure to be a third world war, and we are sure to lose it. And so we must work together. Americans do work together in times of crisis. Sometimes, however, each of us believes this means working on his own terms. But this time we must work not on our own terms, but on the terms of the fighting men in Korea. Because from here out, if we ought to survive, there must be equality of sacrifice right across the board. Patriotism is not something only expected of the young. In the world of sports this week, two ex-basketball stars at Manhattan College, New York, were arrested for trying to fix basketball games at Madison Square Garden. Junius Kellogg, the colored star of this year's team, refused to consider a bribe and told authorities. His team won. And in that corner of the sports world where sports and literature and philosophy meet, there was a bizarre tale involving the voices of a professor and a bunch of pugs from Stillman's gym in New York. The professor is Father Francis Connell of Washington, who wrote a magazine piece stating that boxing, as we know it today, is barbaric and irreligious. If by boxing we mean... 
an exhibition of skill uh, in which the opponents parry blows without any intention or danger of injuring each other, I would say that it's a very uh, fine sport. I think that it is uh, helpful toward developing the arts of self-defense. But if by boxing we mean that form of, of contest whereby each one tries to strike the other as hard as he can, and uh, if possible to score a knockout, uh, the type of contest which often involves grave injury to one or both of the parties, I believe that that is against the law of God. And I think it's very degrading, not only to the individual's concern, but also to the spectators. If we can develop in our boxes the idea that they are not there to injure each other, to hurt each other, to knock each other out, but are there to manifest their skill and ingenuity their ability to parry light blows, I think that uh, that is the main solution to our problem. On New York's 8th Avenue, near Madison Square Garden, is Stillman's Gym, a combination paddock for new boxers on their way up and a green or cauliflower pasture for those old ones who took just one punch too many. We sought a few prize fighters' reactions to Father Connell's article. He said he would be delighted to hear what they said, that their reaction might even help prove his point. This is old-timer Johnny Dundee. I don't think they would like that. They want to see fight. People go there to see fights. Now, years ago, we used to fight and give them a lot of action, plenty of action, and still, if I remember correctly, the audience were more groggy than the fighters in the ring. I don't, I don't think they would like that. They'd walk out. Uh, this is Patty Young. Well, that'd be all right with us fellas, but what about the boxing fans itself? They wouldn't like it. They like to see blood. Uh, my name is Dick Wagner. Uh, I, I think myself that uh, boxing wouldn't draw a nickel if, you, if each boxer was to let up on himself. Because to have a fighting instinct, you have to go in there with the urge to kill a person. That's what the public likes. Uh, now, if you get up and, and fancy Dan around, I don't think uh, the people would go for that. I got my nose broken. I lost three teeth in the fight game, and I'm not sorry for it. I think that's what the public paid for, and that's what they got to see. Uh, I'm Joe Maselli. I'm a boxer, and I got a punch, too. And uh, I should punch because they're going to punch me back. I want the crowd to see me fight, not to see playing with each other. They like to see a guy go on his face once in a while or something like that. They like to see some blood. Wrestling used to be a terrific sport at one time until they did the same thing. They made so many, so many low... So many slowed-down effects to it that now wrestlers are bums. That's all they are. They just go in, they go in the ring now, and they put on a terrific vaudeville show. If they'd done the same thing to boxing, boxing would lose its interest, and people wouldn't go to see it except, except a lot of ladies. From Stillman's gym to another gym, but not for a sporting event. The hubbub you hear is the student body of Notre Dame, almost 5,000 of them, at the gymnasium in South Bend, as they were addressed by Father John Cavanaugh, the president of the university. The gymnasium was so crowded that all had to stand. Father Cavanaugh wanted to stop the draft panic, which was not confined to Notre Dame. The $64 question which you want answered this morning is, I believe, this one. I know that by law, I am safe until June, so long as I do satisfactory work in the university. 
But if I wait until June, I may not be able to enlist and enter the particular branch of service which I prefer. So maybe I had better pull out of the university now and enlist when I have a chance. I wish you to know that all college men who are not active members of a reserve are entitled by law to postponement of military service until June of 1951 so long as they do satisfactory work here in the university. From Notre Dame to Harvard University and Dr. James Conant, President Conant thinks three-year college courses may not be far away. And he went on to say, Under any form of draft, as long as mobilization remains partial, there will be a considerable number of young men enrolled in our colleges and universities. Indeed, after the transitional years, the numbers might be at least as great as in the 1930s. We have talked of Harvard and Notre Dame and production and manpower and some of the problems facing America. This next story involves all these places and things and revolves about one of the few major problems that an ingenious America and the world have never been able to solve. This is a program of sounds. The sneeze you just heard cost the United States $2 billion a year. The first atom bomb cost us the same amount. That last sneeze came from but one of 20 million Americans who have colds right now including Mrs. Harry Truman of Washington, D.C., Mrs. Rose Pink of Patterson, New Jersey, Mr. Lionel Barrymore of Hollywood, California, and this miserable reporter. According to insurance companies and government statistics, 94% of us get a cold once a year, and every cold costs us an average of $25. We swallow about 40 million pills a day treating them and spend $100 million a year on pills, drops, lozenges, and sprays. <laughs> 